0: This teaching addresses the doctrine of baptisms. The New Testament records both acts and spiritual principles of baptism. Hence, the doctrine of baptisms describes not only the acts recorded in scripture, but also the spiritual truths these outward acts signify. Baptism means to immerse, to either put something down into water to be covered fully or pouring water over to totally cover. The act of baptism baptism represents a transition. One, baptism of repentance. Matthew 3, verse 11 reads, I indeed baptize you with water to repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." John the Baptist baptized in water into repentance. Those who had shown fruit of repentance by their life and actions were baptized to affirm their repentance. It communicated transition from an old way of evil living to live as befitting the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 to 9 says, He said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore produce fruit worthy of repentance. John's baptism took place in the Jordan for those who showed fruit of repentance. The baptism did not produce or create repentance, but was a seal or evidence for those who had repented. Two, Christian baptism. As a believer and as a follower of Christ, the baptism that is experienced by the believer is in different folds. And we are going to address them here. One, baptism in the spirit, into Jesus Christ. This baptism produces the new birth. God brings a person into his kingdom by the new birth. John's baptism did not produce the new birth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free, and were all given to drink into one spirit. John baptized in water into repentance, but in the new birth we are baptized in the spirit into one body, which is the body of Christ. This baptism into Jesus is the baptism into death or termination and signifies the end of the flesh. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 to 4 says, Or are you without the knowledge that all we who had baptism into Christ Jesus had baptism into his death? We have been placed with him among the dead through baptism into death. This baptism is the transition from death to life. On the cross, baptism into Jesus affirms these realities for the believer? A. Substitution. B. Identification. C. Baptism. Substitution. Jesus Christ died for us. Identification. Jesus Christ died as us. And in the baptism, Jesus Christ died with us. The baptism into Jesus Christ signifies the death of the old, sinful, carnal, rebellious self. And the new self or new creation is birthed by being baptized in the life giving spirit of God. John chapter 3 verse 5 says, Jesus said in answer, Truly I say to you, if a man's birth is not from water and from the Spirit, it is not possible for him to go into the kingdom of God. When the baptism in the Spirit happens, the newborn again believer by the Spirit is now considered, planted as a part of the body of Christ as a whole, and is now in the kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit even as you have been marked out by God in the one hope of his purpose for you. So to do a recap, this is what I am describing. In the baptism in the Spirit into Jesus, we are baptized in the Spirit into the death of Jesus. And in the baptism of the Spirit, we receive life. These things happen at the same time. So after being baptized into death in Jesus, the life-giving Spirit which baptizes us now infuses life and we become new creation. We become the new creation. So John chapter 3 verse 5 says, Truly I say unto you, if a man's birth is not from water and from the Spirit, it is not possible for him to go into the kingdom of God. When the baptism in the Spirit happens, the newborn-again believer by the Spirit is now considered a part of the body of Christ as a whole and is now in and of the kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says, There is one body and one Spirit, even as you have been marked out by God in the one hope of His purpose for you. The other aspect of Christian baptism is what is experienced after the born-again experience, which is water baptism. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says, He who has faith and is given baptism will get salvation, but he who has not faith will be judged. Just as John's baptism did not produce or create repentance, but was a seal or evidence for those who had repented, this water baptism does not create the new birth. But it signifies the commitment, that point, to the identification, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a commitment to discipleship. Water baptism also communicates a spiritual reality of being severed from the world. This is a, world, this is a removal of worldly entanglement and sin and guilt consciousness in first peter chapter three, verse 20 to 21 it says who in the days of noah went against god's orders but god in his mercy kept back the punishment while noah got ready for the ark in which a small number that is to say eight persons got salvation through water verse 21 and baptism of which this is an image now gives you salvation not by washing clean the flesh, but by making you free from the sense of sin before God through the coming again of Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, this scripture describes and defines for us the spiritual principle behind water baptism. It communicates a reality, a spiritual reality of being severed from the world and the world's entanglement and pursuits. It removes these worldly entanglements and removes sin and guilt consciousness. The third baptism described in the scripture is the baptism of the Spirit. This is not the first encounter of the Spirit of God or it's not the born-again experience of the believer. The moment a person is born again, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within the believer. Speaking in tongues is an evidence, a proof of a person filled with the Holy Ghost. And it's not a sign of salvation, which is to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and proclaiming him as Lord. Baptism of the Spirit refers to the outcovering of the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 verse 17 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days. God declares that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all mankind and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Baptism into the Spirit, as mentioned before, is the life-giving experience of the Spirit of God. However, the baptism of the Spirit ushers the believer into the power dimension and the demonstration Of the power of the Spirit. The next baptism described in the scripture is the baptism of fire. The baptism of fire talks of the judgment and consummation of the age, the day of vengeance and judgment to judge evil men and the present world. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, and 2 Peter 3, verse 7 shows us this baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 to 12, Says he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose furnace is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 7 gives a clearer picture on what the scripture means. It says, But the present heaven and the present earth have been kept for destruction by fire, which is waiting for them on the day. Of the judging and destruction of evil men. The last baptism as described in the scripture is baptism into the suffering of Christ and his death. First Peter chapter four, verse 14 says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. The baptism into the suffering and death of Christ represents the persecution that is guaranteed for believers by virtue as a result of their faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. Thus, teaching is going to focus on the doctrine of faith towards God. Faith remains a very key component of our Christian faith. And for the New Testament believer, faith is the bridge that links him or her to the kingdom and to the realities of it. What then are we supposed to understand about this spiritual principles as a foundation? Follow me on this point. Man lost life by disobeying God in the garden. In the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 12, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death has spread. John chapter 10 verse 10. I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. Jesus Christ came to give life to man. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the one who brings people back to life and I am life itself. Those who believe in me will live even if they die. I am life itself. Here Jesus tells the woman, he is life itself. He is the one who brings people back to life and says those who believe in him will live even if they die. John chapter 3, verse 16, He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not die but have eternal life. This gives a picture of the journey of man from the garden to the point of life. This gives a picture of why the need for faith, as I went through before, Man lost life by disobeying God in the garden. Jesus Christ came to give life to man. He came to give eternal life to man. And this life, this eternal life, is received by faith in him. When you consider the principle of faith, in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Consequently, faith comes from listening. And listening comes through the word of Christ. Faith comes by listening. In other versions, it says, Faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says, In fact, it says, The message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. As is written in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So the principle of faith works on the wise of listening and listening by the word of Christ and the confession of the word on your lips. So in your heart and on your lips. So the principle of faith Works in the belief in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and the confession of your lips that Jesus is Lord. Faith is not hope. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith assures us of things we expect and convinces us of the existence of things we cannot see. Other version says, Faith. Is the substance of things we hope for. Things we expect is different from the assurance of the things we expect. Hope is for the future and faith is in the now and in the present. For example, a person will have hope for that which is yet to come, but then the faith of a person acts and possesses in the present what, the, what was earlier a hope. I take it again, hope is for the future and faith is in the now and in the present. For example, a person will have hope for that which is yet to come, but faith is an, but faith acts and possesses in the present. A person looks forward to what they hope for, but faith receives in the present. Faith is not a product of reason but a spiritual force and it stems from a total dependency on God. There are two dimensions of faith. One, there's the act of faith and two, there is the attitude of faith. Faith as an act makes us to know God and is in the realm of belief. However, the attitude of faith is seen and lies in trust in God and As believers should be our disposition after being born again. It is the act of faith that gets an unbeliever saved and born again, after which the attitude of trust is needed. So for an unbeliever, it is the act of faith that would make him confess. So previously we spoke about the principle of faith. Belief in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God, And the confession of him as Lord. That is the act of faith. The attitude of faith is now knowing that one is saved and believing and living in the consciousness of believing and understanding and walking in the covenant. The act of faith is that which overcomes and the attitude of faith is that which endures. Trusting in self is a hindrance to faith in God. For faith is that which makes God's facts factual over the evidences around. Trust is wholly leaning on God. In the scriptures, four kinds of faith are described for us. In the book of Luke chapter 7 verse 3 and 9, the verse 3 says, And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him, that he would come and heal his servant. Verse 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Here Jesus makes mention of great faith. Thus, one of the kinds of faith described in scripture is great faith. And great faith is a product of revelation, a product of information. The scripture says, And when he heard, that was the beginning point. It continues and says, He sent unto Jesus the eldest of the Jews. He was bold in his action. He besought Jesus that he would come and heal his servant. And when he heard, He sent and besought him. Jesus describes this as great faith. Little faith is the kind of faith opposite to great faith. As great faith is a product of revelation and is bold and does not entertain fear. Little faith, however, has little revelation and is mostly full of doubts and fear. Romans chapter 4 verse 19 to 21. And, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was also, he was able also to perform. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. The scripture in verse 20 says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Strong faith is also another kind of faith that is described for us in the scripture. As it is written in the scripture, this kind of faith is fully persuaded, always giving glory to God and in a jubilant mood. So as the scripture describes the disposition of Abraham, it says he staggered not at the promise through unbelief, was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Thus strong faith is the kind of faith that is fully persuaded, always rejoicing, giving glory to God and considers God's word only, regardless of circumstances. Opposite to this is weak faith. Weak faith considers worldly facts or situations or experiences against the promises of God. So in opposite to strong faith, which was exhibited by Abraham, you realize that weak faith considers situations against the promises of God and renders faith impotent or without power. This kind of faith is always giving excuses, always considering circumstances, always considering the conditions for which faith would not work, and is not fully persuaded of the promises of God. This particular teaching is going to focus on the principle and the doctrine of laying on of hands. this principle finds its application right from the old testament and continues through in the new testament in the book of hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of christ let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward god and of the doctrine of baptisms of laying on of hands of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So laying on of hands is what we are going to be treating in this particular teaching. In the book of Leviticus chapter one, verse number four, it reads, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the offerer of the offering would lay hands on his offering before it was accepted. But then why and how would this burnt offering now be accepted to make atonement? This is because of the principle of laying on of hands. When we read Leviticus chapter 16 verse 21, it gives us a clearer description of what is happening during this process of laying on of hands. It reads, he will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. This brings us to our very first point. Laying on of hands is for the purpose of identification and union. When the hands are laid on the animal, the animal now is identified as one with the offerer. And in the case of sin offering, the animal becomes a substitute for the one making the offering. As it is written in the scripture, for the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Thus, when the hands are laid upon the animal, what happens is now the animal becomes a substitute. So the, the animal is identified with the person giving the offering and takes the place of the Of the offerer. Secondly, laying on of hands is a means of spiritual impartation. In the book of Acts chapter 19 verse 6, it reads, Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. The chapter gives an account of Paul meeting certain disciples who were yet introduced to the Holy Spirit they still had the baptism of John into repentance. However, after Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. This same principle of laying on of hands for the purpose of spiritual impartation is revealed in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Paul exhorts Timothy not to neglect the spiritual gift he received through prophecy spoken over him when the church elders laid their hands on him. Here we see the laying on of hands being the means of spiritual impartations. In Mark chapter 16 verse 17 to 18, Jesus says to his disciples, These signs shall follow them who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, and they will speak in new languages. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. I repeat, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Again, we see the principle of laying on of hands. Jesus says, we as disciples shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Thus, healing can be released through the laying on of hands for the recovery of the sick. Our fourth point, laying laying on of hands is for the purpose of ordaining. It also confirms spiritual authority. Turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13 verse 3. It reads, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So the act of laying hands now ordains them. It confirms the spiritual authority which has been conferred unto them for the work of the ministry. So here you can also understand that the principle of laying on of hands also commissions people for the work of the ministry. Finally, laying on of hands exercises governmental authority and power in the church. James in the chapter 14, chapter 5, sorry, verse 14 says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. I read again, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. We notice here James specifically mentions for the sick to call for the elders of the church for the purpose of anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. In this situation, there involves one who is sick. However, unlike the command to believers generally to lay hands for the recovery of the sick as Jesus gave to the disciples, the command Jesus gave to disciples, this involves the application of anointing oil after prayer and James specifically mentions to call for the elders of the church. So we see here the laying on of hands exercises the governmental authority and power of the leadership in the church. This teaching is going to address repentance from dead works. The New Testament translates four words, four Greek words as repentance. One, Metanoio, it is a change of mind in purpose, attitude, and direction. This is what the Lord requires of us as New Testament believers. It is a changing of the mind. In the book of Revelation chapter 2 verse 5, this is the word that is used. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. The Greek word used there is metanoio. The second word which translates as repentance is metamelumai, which means a worldly sorrow or remorse or regret. It is a disappointment over something one has failed to do. This is false repentance. Judas is an example. He had remorse without a change of mind. In the book of Matthew chapter 27 verse 3, it says, Then Judas, who was false to him, seeing that he was to be put to death in his regret, took back the thirty bits of silver to the chief priests and those in authority. The Greek word translated as repent there is meta melumai which means worldly sorrow, remorse, or regret. However, repentance without a change of mind is not true repentance as is required from us, from the Lord. A third word which translates as repentance in the New Testament is emetamelitos. This is an adjective which is used to mean Without a change of mind, it describes a state of constancy, a state of immutability of mind. Romans chapter 11 verse 29 uses this to describe God. It says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So when God does a thing, he does it without a change of mind. God has no regret for giving us of our sins as believers. It speaks of God's immutability in thought and purposes. So when scripture says there is no condemnation for sin for the believer, it is not something God regrets or goes back on. So in the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit convicts, makes the believer see the error of their ways and brings them to repentance, which is a change of mind in purpose, in attitude and direction. Thus, when the Holy Spirit convicts, the believer changes their mind concerning an action, concerning a belief, concerning a situation, and goes and acts and lifts in the direction of the Word of God. Most often than not, condemnation It's rather the work of the enemy who seeks to condemn the believer. So scripture refers to him as the accuser of the brethren. The last word which is translated as repentance in the New Testament is metanoia. This noun refers to the state of a person after true repentance. So this means that after metanoia, what is, which is a change of mind in purpose, attitude, and direction, the state a person gets into after a change of mind. So it describes a state a person now begins to live in when they show repentance in their thinking and actions. And this repentance is seen in their way of life and the decisions they make. Luke chapter 3 verse 8 uses this word. It says, Bring forth therefore fruits which are worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves. So John the Baptist, talking to the Pharisees, tells them to bring forth fruits therefore worthy of repentance. It means their repentance should be seen in their actions, in their thinking, and in their way of life. So after metanoia, true repentance, has taken place, the believer is supposed to be in a state of repentance, metanoia. Why is repentance important? Mark 1 verse 15 says, And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Understand this. Without repentance, faith cannot come and cannot be a reality. The scripture says, repent ye and believe the gospel. What repentance does is repentance now turns the unbeliever towards God. Scripture says about John the Baptist that John the Baptist's ministry came to turn the hearts of the children to the Father. And we understand from the scriptures that God has given to everyone and has dealt to everyone the measure of faith. But then God can only do the measure of faith to one who is open, who is facing, who is open to him. And repentance is that which opens up a man to receive faith and to act out faith in God. So, faith comes after repentance. So like I've already mentioned, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' message. With John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' ministry with the message of repentance. Repentance is the only way to prepare for the Lord to come to our hearts. God requires true repentance from us. Repentance is not an emotion, but a decision of the will. Repentance can occur without a show of emotion. However, without a change of will, repentance cannot happen. The believer must first acknowledge his ways as not pleasing to God and decide to turn and change away from them and follow God then faith can follow. So at times, a struggle for faith is actually a lack of repentance on the part of the believer. How does true repentance look like? And what are some of the depictions? What are some of the the, the, the characteristics of true repentance? Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 10 to 11. Gives us an insight. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves, to be clear in this matter. From this scripture, it is clear that there is a thing such as godly sorrow, which is true repentance to God, which we described earlier as metanoio, and there is the sorrow of the world which is described as metamelumai, as seen in the instance of Judas. The scripture makes us understand that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. And then the sorrow of the world produces death. So clearly from this scripture, you can understand that. So for Peter and for Judas, both fell away. However, For godly sorrow, in the case of Peter, it worked repentance to salvation and to reconciliation. But for sorrow of the world, which was expressed by Judas, it ended in death. The church at Corinth gives us a model on how true repentance takes its course in a believer. And the passage I just read gives us the, the model. So, one, carefulness of self. Verse 11 says, Behold, this self same thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness! In the process of repentance for a believer, of true repentance for a believer, it starts with a carefulness of self. Instantly, there seems to be an awareness not to allow any compromise of righteousness. Two indignation the scripture says that what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves yea, what indignation? For the believer who has found true repentance, now there is an anger towards the situation for righteousness sake. there is a bit of a there's a bit of an anger where the person feels disappointed, they feel they have stooped low, Or they have stooped to a lower level. So now there's a bit of an anger to not allow such situation to happen again. Three, there is a vehement desire and there is a fear, a godly fear. At that point, the believer who has found true repentance now has a strong passionate urge and so now, a believer who has found true repentance has a strong, passionate edge to dissociate from any form of unrighteousness. As a result of whatever sin the believer may have fallen into, true repentance would mean that now they, are, they have a strong edge not to even get close to any form of unrighteousness. Then the scripture continues and says, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So the final model is zeal. Now there is a determination, there is a willingness to do better in similar situations. Now the believer decides that They are not going to take the wrong decisions they took before. And Paul ends by saying that in all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So Paul is trying to say that after true repentance has been found, where there's a carefulness of self, there's an indignation, there is a godly fear and vehement desire not to get close to unrighteousness and the zeal to do better that approves the person to be cleared and to be described as truly repented. This, however, is a model that we find in scripture to describe how true repentance takes its course in a believer. You would recognize that The doctrine says repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. Why not repentance from sin? Dead works are different from sin. At the cross and at the death of Jesus, sin was dealt and judged with. Thus, the believer has no price to pay for sin. Jesus paid for sin by his death on the cross. But then now, the believer is supposed to work in life. So dead works are works or acts of service that are done without God or are done not in faith to God. Faith is what brings life to any activity we do and to what we believe. As the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The scripture makes us understand that faith without works is dead. Thus, faith is what brings life to any activity we do and to what we believe. The principle here is that dead works affects the nature or quality of a believer's service unto God and renders it dead to God. As the scripture says, without faith, we cannot please God. This principle of dead works can also be seen from the Old Testament law, which says to touch a dead thing is to be defiled. In Haggai 2 verse 13, Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these, thus touching dead works, even in the principle of the Old Testament, is defilement. In similar fashion, in the New Testament, dead works now affects or defiles or degrades the purity and the life nature of a believer's service unto God. And renders the service dead to God. Hence, repentance from dead works. Shalom, everyone. You're welcome to this class on foundational doctrines. In this series of classes, I'm going to take you through a series of biblical teachings that are established as foundational doctrines of our faith. These teachings are not exhaustive of all Christian biblical doctrine, but they are going to cover key areas of the doctrine of the apostles, the foundation layers of our faith. So, why doctrine? What is doctrine? For us believers, what role does doctrine play in our faith and our spirituality? You may have heard and may be familiar with so many thoughts and perspectives on this topic. However, let's delve into the scripture and let the word of God form our understanding of this aspect of Christian faith. Open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It reads, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Another version puts it, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So you're going to realize that in one 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 translation, doctrine is... translated in another as teaching so you have to understand that doctrine is teaching something that is taught and it is the teachings or doctrine of christ and as revealed by the apostles that establishes us in our faith in god so john in second john chapter 9 says anyone who does not remain in the teaching or doctrine about christ but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says, Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. So clearly, John and Paul, Put doctrine or teaching as an important aspect of your faith and of your salvation. So from these scriptures, we can clearly see the need and the importance of biblical foundations of doctrine and teachings of Jesus and of our faith in God. Now, the scope of our teachings are going to be based on the text in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 to 3. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. We are going to take them and go into the doctrines as the apostles taught in the scriptures and we're going to understand some of the fundamental and foundational teachings that give substance to the expression of our faith. This teaching is going to address the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection means to stand up out of. Resurrection refers to standing up out of or passing through death and the grave and not affected or touched by it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 says, "And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Understand that man is a spirit being with a soul and has a body. Out of these, it is the body of a man that dies, and the body is what will be resurrected. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. When we consider the story of Lazarus and the rich man recorded in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31, which gives us a picture of how the resurrection is like. This is what is suggested. One, there is a persistence of personality after death. This means that the rich man could recognize Lazarus, could recognize Abraham, and vice versa. Two, there is a recognition of persons and recollection of life on earth. The rich man could recollect his life on earth and could recollect that Lazarus was a beggar. Three, there is a consciousness of their present condition. The rich man recognized that he was thirsty and was in a place of torment and recognized that Abraham and Lazarus were at a place where they were comfortable and thus sought some help from them. Also, what is evident in this passage of scripture is that there is a complete separation between righteousness and unrighteousness. Abraham and Lazarus found themselves in a different plane in a different place and the rich man found himself in another plane There are 3 dimensions of salvation one there's the initial salvation progressive fi- progressive salvation and the final salvation So when we consider the salvific work of God in man. The initial salvation is the regeneration of the spirit. That is when we are born again after we receive Jesus Christ or when we become born again when we receive Jesus Christ. There is the progressive salvation which is the transformation of our soul and our mind. This change is by the word of God. The final salvation is at the redemption of our body. Here, mortal death doomed body is replaced by the resurrection body. The believer has a twofold standing with God. We are born as sons, and as slaves, we are bought from a world of sin. The scripture says, To whom who believed in him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. When we read Romans chapter 6 verse 20 and 22, Paul makes us understand that we are slaves sold unto sin and Jesus by his sacrifice bought us. So in our salvation, we have two—we have a twofold standing with God. So we are as sons, we are born, but as slaves unto sin, we have been bought out of a slave market. Our salvation will be completed at the resurrection where we are collected, redeemed, received, taken, and caught up. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope of the church, the great hope of we believers is the resurrection of our bodies. Jesus resurrecting and ascending created the church and the resurrection of the saints at his second coming will be the end of the church age. Our work and our work, our relationship and commitment in our lives on this earth should be in the light of eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40 to 50, we have a description of how our bodies will be changed at the coming of Christ Jesus. Verse 42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. Here, Paul talks about how our bodies are going to be changed and likens it as unto a seed. It says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So in the natural, the body is sown in corruption. A resurrected body is raised in incorruption. Verse 43 says, it is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 44 says, it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. Verse verse, verse 47 says, The first man is of the earth, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. This gives us a distinction of how the resurrected bodies will be. Our born-again saved spirits are imprisoned in our earthly bodies. We do not have full expression of who we truly are. The resurrected body connects the spirit and expresses the spiritual nature fully. Acts chapter 24 verse 14 says, And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Resurrection of the just is the first resurrection it is the resurrection of commendation where god appreciates his saints for work done on the earth john chapter 5 verse 29 says and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation resurrection of the unjust is the second resurrection resurrection of condemnation And damnation is for them that are unsaved and don't have eternal life. Matthew 27 verse 50 to 53 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out after the graves after Jesus' resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. This is what is called the first fruits of the resurrection. At Jesus' coming, there are two categories of people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17 s- describes for us. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord those dead in christ and those who remain are caught up hebrews chapter 12 verse 23 says to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect these are the spirits of men who await the resurrection and the glorified body. The resurrected body will emerge with the spirit of these men to be transformed. In the resurrection, the bodies receive life. So then what does this mean? You remember before in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40 to 50, Paul likens the body to a seed. And he gives us a distinction of the resurrected and the natural body. And he says the natural body is sown in corruption, in dishonor, in weakness, as a natural body and of the earth. And is raised in incorruption, glory, power, and is raised as a spiritual body and of heaven. So when someone is asleep in the Lord, their spirits go out to be with the Father. At the coming of Jesus, what is going to happen is the body which has been sown in dishonor in weakness is going to be raised as a spiritual body in glory in strength and in power and will merge with the spirit of these men who are the just men made perfect and to be transformed so in the resurrection the body soon receive life the principle of resurrection is at the appearing who jesus fully is we become Isaiah chapter 26 verse 19 says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. For the resurrection of the unjust is a resurrection unto damnation, Since their bodies are not to be saved, because they are not saved, they they are resurrected and restored to their destroyed body with every defect of the death-doomed nature. In the lake of fire, there will be earthly and spiritual torment.